I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Luke chapter 22. We're going to continue to keep our uh, study of First Peter on pause. From time to time, when I'm studying, and perhaps you, have, you can relate to this, sometimes it's helpful to push away from the desk and go and clear your mind for a time and busy yourself with other important work and then return to the desk with a fresh pair of eyes and a fresh mind and begin the study again. And that's essentially how I like to think about what we're doing today and last week, as you know, Josh led us through Acts chapter 2 to talk about faithful fellowship. And I'll tell you, it is, I've said this before and I'll continue to say it, it's such a joy and a pleasure uh, to know that I can step away, take a moment away from here, and we have men that God has gifted this church with that not only have ability to teach God's Word, but have a desire to do so. So thank you both, Jacob and Josh, for doing that. And this morning, as we consider the Lord's Supper, we want to busy ourselves with an exposition of, of what is the Lord's Supper. It is, of course, one of the two ordinances that Christ has given to His church. I told you this morning in Sunday school I was going to quote a lot of Spurgeon, and here he is one more time. He says of the ordinance of the Lord's Supper, I think the moments we are nearest to heaven are those we spend at the Lord's table. And I wonder, do you feel that way? This is such a, a weighty time together. It's not simply a ritual that religious people like to do from time to time. The Lord's Supper has profound significance. And as such, it's definitely deserving of our time in study today so that we could understand where this ordinance comes from, what it signifies, why we do it, when we should celebrate it, who can partake of it, and how we are to prepare our hearts to partake of the Lord's Supper. By God's grace, that is exactly how we will spend our time today. And at the end of this sermon, we'll have the unique opportunity to immediately apply what we have learned in Scripture today as we come to the Lord's table. And I'd like to begin our time this morning at the beginning of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, in the upper room with the Twelve and Christ Himself, as He instituted what we now call the Lord's Supper. And as we do that, we will see where this ordinance comes from. If you're there, Luke chapter 22, if you would, please stand with us in reverence for God's Word as we read verses 14 through 20. This is the word of the living God. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you 
before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Let's pray. Lord God Almighty, you are truly holy, holy, holy. Lord, we turn our attention now, as we have sung your praises, to now hear from you from your word. We ask that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, that the soil of our heart would be fertile ground to receive the seed of your word, to bear much fruit for your glory. We pray, Lord, that we would clearly see Christ this morning. I pray that I would not speak from my own human wisdom or intellect, but that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing before you, O Lord my God. I pray that we would learn, that we would grow from our time together, and that Christ be glorified. We pray this in your name. Amen. You can be seated. Jesus here is in the final hours of his life, and he will soon go to pray in the Garden of Gethsemane and be betrayed by one of his own disciples, a disciple who, by the way, is at the table with him. And not much longer after that, as you know, he will be crucified. So this is his last night, then, with the disciples. Now, I'm sure that all of you believe, as I do, that God is sovereign, We believe that God is the one who ordains all things to happen that do happen and keeps from happening the things that do not happen. All of human history is playing out God's sovereign decree, His plan, and His purpose. It's certainly no different in the life of Jesus Christ. As He walked this earth, however, He was much more aware than you and I will ever be of God's sovereign plan and leading. He knew what He was here to do. He knew how it would all unfold, and He knew exactly when everything would take place. This is wonderfully demonstrated here in the context of our passage. I want you to just take a step back to look at verse 7 with me. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. And they said to him, Where will you have us to prepare it? He said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters, and tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. Isn't this remarkable? 
how Jesus orchestrated this entire event. He tells his disciples to go into the city, find some random unnamed person who's carrying a jar of water, go with him, follow him back to his house, and ask the master of the house where this room is so that they can prepare the Passover. And then they'll find the room that they're going to be using, which, by the way, just so happens to be furnished. See, you get all your furniture from Bob Mills. Fully furnished room. How is this? In control of every moment of his life here, the Lord is. Jesus doesn't make the info of where they will be gathering public to all of his disciples. He doesn't say, go and meet this individual by the name of so-and-so to go to so-and-so's home, and that's where we're going to eat. Hey, disciples, all of you go with them to prepare, because it takes a lot of people to prepare the Passover. Instead, he only sends Peter and John, and is very anonymous with what's going on and why. Back in verse 6, you could look at it, because Judas was looking for an occasion to betray the Lord in the absence of a crowd. He was looking to betray Jesus. What better place to do it than in a room tucked away, away from a crowd, where Jesus is right there, and there's no one there aside from the disciples. But Jesus knew it wasn't his time to be arrested yet. So he sends Peter and John on this mission to prepare the Passover. He knew that this was his last night, that it wasn't time for his suffering just yet. So he controlled all of the events to play out exactly as they did. God's sovereign hand is all over this moment, even up to, if not especially so, in the timing of this supper. What do I mean by that? Because it's taking place during Passover. That's what the disciples are going to prepare, is is Passover. Well, Why Passover? What's the significance of this? Why not just some other time? Why not in the middle of May? Why not in December? He was born on Christmas Day, we celebrate anyway, right? Why not some other day? Why Passover? I want you to get your Bible and turn, hold your place there in Luke and go back to Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12. And we're looking to see where, what's the significance here of Passover. And I want to give you some context as you've turned there of what's going on here in Exodus. As you know, the, the Israelites were in captivity in Egypt for 430 years. God had been raining down plagues on the Egyptians, namely on Pharaoh, to get him to release his people. But Pharaoh continues to harden his heart against the Lord. And so, here is one more plague. What is he going to do? He's going to kill all of the firstborn of everyone in the land, of both man and beast. But God instructs his people through Moses to take a lamb without blemish for every household, They were to kill the lamb, collect the blood of the lamb, and put it on the doorposts of their homes. They were then to eat the entire lamb, stay inside of their homes, and eat it with unleavened bread, and stay in their homes until morning. And that's where we pick up at verse 12. Look at it with me. 
For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt, get this, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Do you see what's going on here? God is coming to execute judgment on the land, but is choosing to show mercy to His chosen people by instructing them to cover the doorposts with the blood of a lamb without blemish. The blood will spare them from judgment. Whenever God sees the blood, He's going to pass over the home. The blood will save them from judgment. Look at verse 14. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations as a statute forever. Verse 17. And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread, for on this very day I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations. So you see Passover, or the feast of Unleavened bread was to be a memorial. It was a time of remembrance of when God freed the Israelites from slavery to Egypt and showed them mercy. He was executing His perfect justice on the land, but His people were receiving mercy because of the blood of the Lamb. Why unleavened bread? Verses 33 through 39, we won't read it, but I'll give you the gist. We see that God has come through and done as He has said. He has struck all the firstborn of every man and beast. The Egyptians make the Israelites leave in such a hurry because of what happened. Pharaoh wakes up in the middle of the night, sees what's going on, and says, get these Israelites out of here right this moment. And so the Egyptians get them out in a hurry. The Israelites didn't have time to pack, and get this, didn't have time to allow their dough to set. So they made cakes of unleavened bread because they had to be kicked out of Egypt in such a hurry that their bread wasn't even set. They were freed from slavery in such a quick moment that their bread wasn't even set yet. If you're listening closely, you're understanding the connection between the Lord's Supper. The Passover feast became a time of remembrance for the people of Israel. They would slaughter a lamb. They would eat unleavened bread. They would remember the 430 years of bondage that ended in a moment when Yahweh set them free. Understand, church, when the Spirit of the Lord sets you free, you are free indeed. As they slaughter the lamb at the beginning of the Passover festival, they are remembering that it is the blood that atones for sin. As they eat the unleavened bread, they're reminded of the power of God to free His people as their ancestors didn't have time to let their dough set before God had already set them free. In this way, they would remember the mighty acts of God the mighty saving arm of God and the mercy of God. Back to our text in Luke 22. This is what they are gathered to do. 
Christ is eagerly desiring to eat this meal because he would be able to show his disciples that the Passover was only a symbol of his work that he would accomplish through his suffering. He would be the lamb that is slain. He would be the one who would spill his blood that would spare his people from judgment. Tonight, he would be putting away the Passover feast of the Old Covenant and instituting what we call communion in the New Covenant. So then, what is communion? What is the Lord's Supper? What does it signify? If we no longer celebrate Passover because Jesus fulfilled it this night, what do we celebrate? Look at verse 19 with me. Jesus tells us what it is very simply, that it is a commemoration of God. He says, do He took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. What is communion? It is a commemoration. It is remembering. It is a time of remembrance. He tells us the the bread is his body given for us, and the cup is his blood poured out for us. The new covenant in his blood. Passover signified what God had done for the Israelites in freeing them from slavery in Egypt and sparing them from temporal judgment, while communion signifies what Christ has suffered for us in freeing us from slavery to sin and sparing us from eternal judgment. Let's consider then the elements individually. We have a cup and we have Bread. Christ said the bread is His body given for us. What can we learn from this? Well, the bread being His body points us to His humanity. Jesus took on flesh. The Word became flesh. You've read John 1, haven't you? The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He was not a ghost or a spirit or any of the other heresies that have been invented over the years but he was truly God and truly man he lived walked breathed and suffered in a human body on this planet but the bread being his body also represents his life So it represents that he had a body, that he lived on this earth, but it also represents his life, his time on this earth. Namely, that he was our perfect, sinless sacrifice. He fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law that you and I could never fulfill. In that Passover meal, they were to take a lamb without blemish and slaughter it. And here is Jesus Christ the fulfillment of that requirement, as he is the Lamb of God. He was most certainly without blemish. When we behold the bread and we think of his perfect life and his bodily sacrifice, we are reminded that he was pierced for our transgressions, that he was crushed for our iniquities, and that with his wounds we are healed. This is all commemorated in the bread that signifies the body. In the cup, 
The cup poured out for us signifies the spilled blood of Christ. We are reminded that He died. We are reminded that His blood was spilled. We are reminded that He died under the weight of our sin. In fact, Jesus Christ came specifically to save sinners. And the only way that He could do that was to give His own precious life for the lives of depraved sinners. Romans 3.12 tells us of our state outside of Christ that all have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. While Christ, on the other hand, only ever did good. You and I, we never do good, but Christ only ever do good. And though the text says that you and I have all become worthless, Christ gave His infinitely valuable life for ours. He takes our lives that are ruined by sin and evil and wickedness and washes us white as snow by purifying us with His blood. Praise Jesus for spilling His blood. The cup of the new covenant is pointing us to, of course, the new covenant that is ratified by the blood of Jesus Christ. I would recommend highly reading through Hebrews if you never had, never have, because it talks at length of the old covenant being done away and that Christ is the mediator of a new and better covenant that is enacted on better promises. But just like Moses sealed the first covenant between Yahweh and the Israelites with the blood of an animal, now Jesus Christ seals the new covenant between God and His people with His own blood. The first covenant promises were that if you obeyed the law, if you obeyed Torah, all would go well with you. But as we know, the Israelites and the rest of mankind could never keep the Mosaic law. And thus, none could attain righteousness before the Lord, and all were condemned. Now, in this new covenant, we are gifted, my friends, with the perfect obedience of Christ Jesus Himself, so that we obtain justification by grace through faith before the Father, not on account of our own worthless merits, our own pitiful law-keeping, but on the merits of Christ Jesus and His perfect obedience. When we partake of the cup, we are reminded of this new covenant that we are blessed recipients of through the spilled blood of Christ Jesus. At this point, it's almost silly to ask this question, but why do we do this? Why do we celebrate the Lord's Supper. We're on our third heading today, if you're following along in the bulletin. Why do we celebrate the Lord's Supper? Well, the first reason is very easy, because Christ said to, right here in verse 19, do this in remembrance of me. This is an imperative. It is a command. Just as God required the Israelites to celebrate the Passover as a memorial of when God set them free, Jesus now is commanding us to keep this ordinance as a memorial to His finished work of salvation. In other words, this isn't optional. We must do this as an ordinance of the church instituted by Christ Himself. 
Second, we do this so that we don't forget Christ's sacrifice. Now, I know that at face value, that sounds really silly. Who could forget the sacrifice of Christ, right? But what did Jesus say? Do this in remembrance of me. He wouldn't have had to have said that if we were not prone to forgetting what God has done. We partake of communion because we must be reminded of our great need for the truth of the gospel. Without the good news, we'd only have the bad news of how wretched we are. But get this, we need to be reminded of how wretched we are. We need to be reminded of what Christ has done. That it took Christ being broken for us, His blood spilled for us, His life laid down for us, in order for our sins to be forgiven. That teaches us both how much we have sinned and how badly we have sinned. But we don't stay there, do we? We then celebrate and thank the Lord that through this, that though the price was high, though the price was unable to be paid by you and I, Jesus paid it. Though it cost Him Everything, Jesus paid it all. In this way, communion, the elements, they serve as a sort of looking glass through which we can peer back into the events that took place on that Good Friday. Or as Spurgeon one more time so eloquently put it, never mind that bread and wine unless you can use them as folks often use their spectacles. What do they use them for? To look at? No, to look through them. So use the bread and wine as a pair of spectacles. Look through them and do not be satisfied until you can say, Yes, yes, I can see the Lamb of God which taketh away the sins of the world. Third, we do this to participate with Christ. I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians 10 with me. And I'm getting you to flip all over the Bible with me because I want your eyes to see this. Because perhaps you've been in church longer than I've been alive. And perhaps you've never heard these things before. And I want you to see that these are not my invention, but the words of Almighty God Himself. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We're going to look at verse 16 quickly. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? You see what he's saying? The cup of blessing is a participation in the blood. The bread is a participation in the body. The word here translated participation is a word that should sound familiar to all of your ears, koinonia. Why would that sound familiar? Because Josh used it last week as we looked at what fellowship is. It's the same word translated fellowship, koinonia. So we are taking part in or joining in, fellowshipping in Christ when we partake of communion. As we remember that night that he was there with his disciples and how He explained the new ordinance that we are doing this in remembrance of Him. 
as we remember what he said, that his body was given for us and his blood spilled for us, we are communing and fellowshipping with our Savior. Fourth, we do this to proclaim Christ. Turn the page to chapter 11, verse 26. Chapter 11, verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. The word for proclaim here is most often used in connection to preaching. It is a way for the church to preach Christ. Whether it be preaching the gospel or preaching the word of God or preaching Christ crucified, that's typically how this word is used. We proclaim the body broken for us, the blood of the new covenant and our desperate need for both of those things. We proclaim the forgiveness of sins by trusting in Christ Jesus. Fifth, we do this to anticipate Christ. Paul writes here that we proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. Jesus said at the table in Luke 22 that He wouldn't drink of the fruit of the vine again until the kingdom of God. What was Christ pointing us to? We read it in the call to worship the marriage supper of the Lamb in Revelation 19. When we take communion, we are not only looking back at what Christ has done not only looking presently and introspectively, but we are also looking forward and expectantly of when our Savior returns and we are united with Him at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Then we will partake of the fulfillment of what these are symbols of. So then, if that's true, when should we celebrate it? Number four. When should we celebrate the Lord's Supper? We read it just now, didn't we? In verse 26. For then, as often as you do it. In other words, as often as you want. How often should we do it? As often as you do it. It's almost circular reasoning. Well, here at Flatland Bible Church, as you know, we partake once a month on the first Lord's Day of the month. Some do it every Sunday, some quarterly, some twice a week. There's no boundary on how often you must do it, only that you must do it, and that you do it in remembrance of Christ. That was an easy one. Fifth, who can partake of communion? Look back in verse 17 of chapter 11. He says, in the following instructions... I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, who did Christ have with him at the table when he instituted the Lord's Supper? Was it everybody? Was it just whoever wanted to come with him? No, it was his disciples. The text says specifically his apostles. And here, as Paul is giving apostolic commands of how to partake of the Lord's Supper, he is referring specifically to the gathered church. Well, as you and I both know very well, the church is not this building. The church is the people who belong to Christ. 
those who are in Christ Jesus is who Paul is referring to. Further, he said that this is a participation in Christ. My friends, those who are not in Christ are not participating with Christ. You could drink a cup of grape juice and eat a wafer, absolutely. But you cannot partake of communion truly. Because when we are partaking of the Lord's Supper, this is a time for believers. In other words, those who have professed Christ, those who possess Christ, those who are in Christ Jesus. That's why we always invite those who are, are believers and in Christ to come forward and partake, and those who are not to stay in their seats and observe why. Isn't that rude? Look at verse 27. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. If anything, it would be rude to invite everyone to come to the front. Because this is a time for believers. Understand, those who are not in Christ can only partake of the elements in an unworthy manner. Because why? They are still at enmity with God. Their sins are not forgiven. And for you this morning, if you're not a believer, if you've never trusted in Christ Jesus, we are thrilled that you are here. And what we would hope is that as we contemplate the bread being his body broken and the blood, the cup being his blood spilled, that you would contemplate your own need for salvation before the Lord this morning. We wouldn't invite you to the table. We would invite you to the foot of the cross. Come and have salvation. Come and have your sins forgiven. The cup that we partake of represents the blood that could wash your sins away today in an instant if you would call upon the name of the Lord right where you are. That's what your invitation is this morning. Lastly, how are we to partake of the Lord's Supper? How should we prepare our hearts as we near our time of partaking of the elements this morning, I want us to hear clearly the word of the Lord. I'm going to read again verses 27 in this section here. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone, my friends, anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. It is a very serious charge against even Christians who take communion flippantly 
carelessly or thoughtlessly. Paul tells us to carefully inspect ourselves. And for what? For sin. He instructs us, again, with apostolic authority, to discern the Lord's body. This is meaning to understand what we are doing here, understanding what this represents. We shouldn't just stand up and come to the front and grab a a cup and a dry cracker and go to your seat and eat it and drink it and say, yay, let's go to Abuelos. That shouldn't be our mindset. It should instead be a time of careful reflection. And that's why before we partake, we always have a time of silence. We don't play music so as to create and fabricate an emotional response out of you. Instead, it's total silence so that it's you and your thoughts and your heart laid bare before the eyes of the living God. If the Holy Spirit is within you, He will bring to remembrance sin that lingers that you have yet to confess. And if not, will my friend call out to the Lord for salvation? Don't allow sin to linger in your life. Don't allow sin to go unchecked. Don't allow sin to choke out the word of God in your heart. Don't allow sin to make shipwreck of your faith. Many have gone before us who have proclaimed and professed Christ their whole lives, who eventually turned from the faith. Why? Because of sin. Because we allow sin to linger we think it's no big deal. I'm doing the best I can. Isn't that good enough? The Father broke His Son for you. The Father gave His only Son for you. The Son had His body broken. The Son spilled His blood for you. He absorbed the wrath of God for you. Of course God takes sin seriously. He never whispers about sin, but shouts that all are condemned outside of the blood of Christ. But you can come to the table and you can remember what God has done. You can remember the body broken, the blood spilled, the weight of your sin on His shoulders, the full measure of wrath absorbed by the Son, the Father being pleased to crush His Son, and the imputed righteousness of Christ that you have received undeservingly. We dare not treat this moment lightly and so be guilty of profaning the sacrifice of Christ. Beloved, you must deal with your sin before coming to the table. If you have sin that is unchecked in your life, confess and repent before the Lord. If you have someone in here you need to go ask forgiveness of, don't come to the table, go ask for forgiveness. This is too serious of a matter for us to be flippant and careless. There are serious consequences for not doing that, for not taking this moment seriously. And what was it? You read it. It's judgment. That you drink down judgment on yourself. Let that not be you. Judgment, even for the Christian, because of making light of the sacrifice of Christ and the gravity of Of this moment. I encourage you this morning as we prepare 
that you do examine your heart, that you do confess and repent, and then you can rejoice and celebrate and proclaim Christ, proclaim the goodness of God in salvation, proclaim the goodness of God for sending His Son, proclaim the goodness of Christ for giving His life, proclaim the goodness of God the Spirit for regenerating you and convicting you of your sin, reminding you that yes, you are a child of God because I no longer delight in sin, I hate my sin and I long to be done with it. And we can celebrate together this morning. Just like the Israelites were to remember the works of God how he saved them from slavery to the Egyptians, how it was the blood of the Lamb that saved them from judgment, how it was all a work of the mercy of God that God chose to show to his people. So you are to recount the works of God, how he saved you from slavery to sin, how it is the blood of the precious Lamb of God that saves you from judgment and how it is all an act of mercy that God chooses to show you. Coming to the Lord's table is a time of remembering what Christ has done, proclaiming the victory and freedom that we have because of His sacrifice, and looking forward to the day that we will be with Him in glory at the great marriage supper of the Lamb. As I said, we have an opportunity to immediately put all of this into practice as we partake of the elements this morning. As I said, we're going to have a moment of silence and examination, and then we're going to come to the table. Well, once we have the bread and cup in our hands, I'll say a prayer, and then we'll read the text as we partake together.